Well, hello, all you rambunctious rhinos out there. Welcome to another episode of A Little Greener, a podcast all about nature, sustainability, and conservation. I am one of your hosts, Casey. And I'm your co-host, Sarah. Thanks for joining us for another week, everybody. I feel like we, Casey, I love how we start every episode and we I don't know that we've ever actually addressed this we've just sort of let it be a thing but whoever yeah. kicks off the episode with we think of an animal and we just do that literally right before we hit the record button or sometimes right after we hit the record button um and for some reason in the beginning I feel like I was stoic about it and now it just makes me want to laugh every time we do it so that was the goal when I came up with it (laughs) I wanted I wanted to see if I could crack Sarah's like I don't know nerves or whatever to see and (laughs) felt like a nice little whimsical thing to do every day but I will say uh as many animals as Sarah and I know the names of and and we're both pretty avid readers so as many adjectives as we know we struggle every Every single time we're about to hit the record button and it's like, no, stop. Wait, I don't have an animal. Why can't I think of any animals? I literally don't know any animals right now is basically how it goes every single week. I also, with my notorious, terrible memory now have no idea what animals we've already used. I may have used pretty sure we used rhinos. I may have used the exact same adjective animal (laughs) combination before anyway. Uh, well done. I like rambunctious rhinos. It's a good one. It's a good mental image. Thanks. My struggle sometimes is that I can't come up with an adjective that is like uniquely positive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like I'll be like, um, no, I don't want to call our audience that particular word. Yeah. So Casey, we chatted a little bit already, but before we dive into our episode today, how are things? How's life? For those of you who are new to the podcast, Casey and I are friends. We used to be coworkers. We now live in different cities, so we don't get to see each other as often or talk to each other as often. So in addition to this podcast being a way to sort of fuel our passion for conservation and sustainability and try to, to grow a community. It's also Casey and uh, my chance to hang out and catch up. So, uh, so this is genuine catch up time. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, as I mentioned last week on the pod, I got surgery on my hand. Um, and I was having a kind of rough week and a half of recovery because I didn't feel like I had very good instructions of what I should be doing with my hand. And so I called the doctor's office and there were some mistakes made on the doctor's office's part. Like I'm pretty sure I didn't get paperwork and things, but the interesting part of the story is that I was upset because the doctor hadn't talked to me after surgery. And turns out the doctor had talked to me after surgery. I had post operative amnesia and didn't remember any part of this conversation. I do have like a mental snippet of him writing down, like you can lift one to two pounds, but no more. That's, that's it. I had nothing else. And unfortunately, like the nurses didn't communicate very well. So they're like, well, that's too bad. He didn't talk to you instead of being like, oh no, honey, he did. But when I talked to the doctor, he was like, I am really sorry. You seemed really lucid and with it. And you know, nothing ever formed in my brain. So, um, so the good news is the hand's healing pretty well. And that I have a fun story about having amnesia. (laughs) That's crazy. And amnesia, anesthesia is so, I mean, amnesia is a weird thing too, but anesthesia yes. <laughs> is such a weird thing to me. Anesthesia freaks me out a little bit. 
I, the only times I've ever been put under, I don't, I don't think obviously that I've ever, I've ever had that happen. I remember when I went under for my wisdom teeth removal, I had to have my friend's husband had to take me because she couldn't. And I wasn't living in the same city with family. And apparently like I tried to talk to him all the way home and I didn't comprehend that he couldn't understand anything that I was saying because you know my mouth was so so apparently I was not super lucid even though I thought I was perfectly understandable so I have that little bit of cloudiness but to just just, just totally not remember nothing it's bizarre it's crazy I will say also my last memory before going under is the anesthesiologist said hey do you drink I said sometimes and he said this is a lot better than that and then just like <laughs> like injected me with drugs <laughs> for about like 10 seconds. I was like, this is kind of nice. And then went out <laughs> like a little light dizzy, like, you know, if you've uh, ever been drunk before, been like, Oh, this is kind of the fun, happy part of me. And then out and then, then woke up and had no memory and then eventually started. Wow. To form so, um, so yeah, surgery is a kick. Uh, if you ever get surgery, make sure you have written instructions afterwards yeah. or someone who doesn't have yeah. amnesia yeah. Yeah, with you in that time period. We'll say that's, that's the kick about COVID is it, it limited our ability to have other people in there with us. So it, I mean, man, <laughs> Crazy. what a, what an experience. Well, but what about, <laughs> I just, I'm glad the doctor actually did talk to you. And He's a good doctor. Yeah. I- <laughs> Uh, I hope the recovery uh, continues to go well for you. So thank you, Sarah. Do you have any amnesia or fun stories to tell us? <laughs> no, that was uh, <laughs> definitely not in the last week. Uh, that my anesthesia story was from many, many years ago. No, I got nothing. Busy, busy, busy here. Just lots of work things. So nothing, nothing super exciting. Nothing super naturey related to talk about from me. Did you week? do your homework? I don't think I totally cannot remember what our homework from last <laughs> oh, week was. No. It was such a good episode. We talked about cars last week. I'm going to touch on that don't a little bit in our episode today. Yes. Yeah, so if you haven't listened to it, to- here's what I did, Casey. I, so I remember you talking about uh, how to drive just, no matter what your vehicle is. Was that our only homework was just to think about? Yeah. Okay. That was our take on. Yeah. So I kind of try to do that all the time. So yes, I did my, I did my homework. My, my goal is always to beat whatever my average is. So we talked about our Priuses last week. My Prius tells me that right now my average miles per gallon usage is 55.5. And I, so I always just try to beat that average every time I drive. So I've been doing pretty well. So I did that, but I also... (laughs) You got me really interested in this idea of plug-in hybrids last week that I didn't know was a thing. And my friend Kim, who is a loyal listener of ALG, thanks Kim, hi, um, she texted me after listening and she's like, there's a plug-in hybrid, she drives a hybrid and she's like, there's a plug-in hybrid version of my car. And I was like, what? And so then I just started Googling, there's a plug-in Prius, a hybrid Prius. That's awesome. <laughs> I had Who knew? no idea. And it's been around for several years. I will say it doesn't have a great review in like car and driver or whatever, no. mostly because of I, the same things that I talked about with the Prius in general, when the Prius oh, first yeah. came out about it's like slow acceleration and all of that, 
which I find not to be an issue at all with my current hybrid version. I looked up power mode. Yeah. Oh, you <laughs> did. You, I did. So if you listen to last week, there's a power mode button in my Prius. And I was wondering if it was going to impact acceleration. And it, I, it did say that is what it's for. It's for when you need to be in a situation where you do want to have faster acceleration, it's going to switch it into that gear a little bit more instead of the most efficient eco-friendly mode, which is sort of the, the way it normally goes. But I'm kind of like Toyota, why are you not advertising these plug-in hybrids yeah. as much. why do I not know that these things exist but um right I mean yeah. so I looked it up and I can get like I seriously had me considering trading in my car again <laughs> already except that I don't I mean I like my car and I don't want to deal with with the hassle right now but if I went a couple of years older I, I have a 2017 and if I went I, I found locally here where I live so not even looking far away I found a 2015 plug-in hybrid. It is a little more expensive than what I paid for mine. Um, and I was kind of at the high end of, of what I wanted to pay anyway, uh, for mine. So it's a, it was a little bit more expensive for a little bit of an older vehicle, but comparable in mileage and everything like that, but, but a plug-in hybrid and it goes, I think they said 25 miles is all it can do, uh, on electric power. Uh, but that's plenty to get me to work and, and back even, but we do have charging stations at my workplace. So I'm just like, man, I could commute to work on electric power every single day. Like I, I got really into it. So, um, so yeah, I did my homework and did a little bonus homework, uh, over last week. Well, congratulations. Great job, Sarah. Thanks. <laughs> did you, uh, so you looked up power mode. Did you monitor your driving styles as well? I did. I, so I used to live in Indiana, which was very, very flat. And now I live in Pennsylvania, which has quite a few more Hills. Mm -hmm. And I've been trying to use my Hills to my advantage to, again, in, if you've ever, if, if you've ever driven a Prius, but don't normally drive a Prius, there are honestly a distracting number of things that you can put up on your little display screen. <laughs> like they've got like almost this model where it's like, when you're breaking, this is the way the energy is yeah. going. And then there's the little like bar that tells you what your efficiency is. So when I first got mine, I was like constantly like, how is this safe to drive? I'm just constantly <laughs> staring at this. Um, but I was trying really, trying to be really conscious about making sure that I wasn't going over a certain speed, even if, you know, and that's safer anyway, but also making sure that like, I wasn't accelerating super hard or decelerating. Andrew's really good at it as a passenger. It sometimes is annoying. Cause you're like, it's going to take us so long to get to this stop sign, even though yeah. I know it doesn't matter, yeah. <laughs> but that's the eco-friendly way to drive. And you're going to save on gas mileage and save on carbon emissions. So that's something to keep in mind. And if you haven't listened to that episode, please go listen to it because I'm really proud of that one. I think we did a good little overview. So I, I see. Yeah, I found it really interesting. And we'll, like I said, we'll touch a little bit more on that today. Uh, tonight's episode is going to be sort of just about technology and innovation in general and how we can and should and shouldn't use that in conservation. So Casey, my question for you before we get into our main discussion tonight is just thinking about technology in general. So, and I don't mean technology like electronic tech is what we usually think about, but just any sort of innovation, appliances, modern conveniences, whatever it is, what's one sort of uh, modern innovation type thing 
phone, computers, appliances, whatever, whatever it is uh, that you sort of feel like you couldn't live without? What's one one thing that you really enjoy or depend upon, however you want to evaluate it? I, I mean, it's super generic, but like our phones are kind of computers and I rely on mine a lot. Um, part of that's because my job has more to do with social media and emails and things now. So it's part of my job, but also because I'm someone who doesn't like to sit with the silence of her own thoughts that freaks me out. And so I like always playing podcasts and music and whatever else I need. So my phone's almost always right next to me. And if I am alone, it is almost always saying something to me. (laughs) So even though it's kind of generic, it just covered like just a lot of bases for me and I could live without it. It would be okay, but it really does like become a central spoke of my life. Like I, I definitely have it within the vicinity, no matter where we're at. Yeah. I'm going to go with that. What about you, Sarah? For sure. That's a good one. I definitely thought about that too. And I, I mean, there's many, many ways that you could take this question. I'm grateful for, for so many things that yes. we have. And initially I did go to phones for a lot of the same reasons that you said, Casey. I mean, there are just things that, you know, every once in a while I'll look something up and I'm just like, man, what did we do? What? Thank goodness for Google, you know, just our, our yeah. access to knowledge maps. Um, maps. Yeah. That was another, I, I was almost going to say GPS just in general, because it's just so nice, you know, whenever I do have to go on a road trip or drive anywhere um, to, to be able to have those maps, but also, so then I just, I started to get a little more deep into it and think about it. And because, you know, we did grow up, like I, I remember the times before smartphones and before computers, oh, yeah. and I did used to, to take, you know, my road atlas. <laughs> with me on trips and you know so I remember all those things so I'm like yeah I could do that again that would be fine you know there would probably be a lot less stress associated associated if I didn't have this much sort of stimulation coming in at me at all times I am also somebody who likes noise but like I could go back to just playing a CD or playing, you know, turning on the radio or whatever if I needed to so I went much more basic and I I'm gonna go generally with um with heating systems so whether like, I knew that's where you were going with it I knew like, it <laughs> I have a furnace to heat my house a water heater to have you know warm water my space heater I have I have already uh resorted to turning on the space heater uh in my house as we finally we're getting some cooler evenings so I'm like yeah I could I could do without the cell phone but please don't take my ability to be warm away from I know I like I I knew once you kind of framed it that way I I was like I'm gonna feel like I'm a millennial because I'm not thinking like far back enough about this question but I then I I was like when she's talking about appliances Sarah is a lizard human <laughs> oh, I she didn't. needs her heat rock. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know it's. I don't like. I said the the phone was sort of my first thing too. But then I that's as I just started running scenarios, and I almost said microwave too. But I think that was like maybe two years ago. Sarah would have said microwave, but I'm trying to be better about using my microwave less. So I'm like, okay, I could I can make some things now. I don't do the TV dinners every night. Um, but yeah, I just please, please don't take my heat away from me. Uh, So there you go. Technology is great. Innovation has helped. There are so, so 
many things that I am grateful for that we use in our daily lives. There's no doubt, obviously, that all our technological advances have an environmental impact as well, for sure. So on tonight's main discussion, we're not going to have a review for you today, but we're going to head right into our main discussion in a minute here. We're going to be talking about some of the ways that technology can be harnessed and used for uh, a positive environmental impact, and maybe we'll discuss a little bit about some of the things that we possibly could do, but maybe should we, uh, and how those things can can have a positive or negative impact on environmental situations. So thanks, Casey, for the, the discussion so far, and everybody stick around, and uh, we'll be chatting about innovation and conservation. Welcome back, everybody. So we're diving right in to our main topic of conversation tonight, and that's going to be innovation and conservation. And we have we've talked about this in a few previous episodes, really. So if you have listened to, I don't even remember what episode number it was anymore, but we have an episode about finding hope uh, in the world of conservation uh, and environmentalism. One of the things that we talked about in that episode is that, you know, things are always changing. So we hear all of these dire predictions, all of these negative news stories coming out. A lot of times when we're hearing about these predictions, these are based on what's happening now and what's going to happen if things don't change. And so one of the things we talked about in that episode is just remembering that that things are changing, maybe not as fast as we would like or need them to do, uh, but things are changing. And uh, so it's important to, to think about those things that are changing and what we're improving so that we can stay positive. You know, we've given some examples. I am still really excited about the possibility of having in-home recycling systems. I think that sounds awesome. Again, our conversation just last week about the future of cars, talking about our plug-in hybrids and our fully electric vehicles, less exciting for me, self-driving vehicles, but uh, but all kinds of things. So tonight, we're really just going to highlight a few other things. We'll talk a, a little bit more about how, how technology can and should be used in terms of conservation and a few other ways uh, that these advances are currently being used. So we're going to talk about some things that are brand new. We're also going to talk about some technology that's also uh, been in use already and how that's sort of growing and evolving, evolving. But before we dive into any specifics, I did just kind of want to address a couple of things that came up as I was doing research for this episode. As with anything, nobody 100% agrees on all of these things. So there are is some pushback to the idea of technological solutions for environmental problems. And I kind of summed up the arguments that I was seeing into three points based on, based on what I was seeing. So Casey, feel free to jump in with any thoughts on this, but basically the I first one- I have thoughts. I, <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, the first one is, basically that technology 
over promises and under delivers. So this idea that over the years, we'll hear about this emerging technology or this emerging technology. And, you know, this is going to be the solution to our problems. And then those things not really coming to fruition. Um, so this is maybe things like nuclear fusion power, also like carbon sucking machines. So machines taking carbon out of the air. We'll talk about that uh, in a minute, but those as being just prompted as these sort of big solutions that then aren't actually practical or for whatever reason uh, to, to put into place. Kind of correlated to that idea is this thought that putting faith in technology like that delays action. So, oh yeah, we're going to, we're going to be able to just take carbon right out of the air. Who cares about trying to reduce our mission, our emissions now, right? So I think those two things kind of go together a little bit. I have a lot of feelings about that. I feel like we try and sometimes use technology as a cop-out for the root of the actual problem, which is the systems in which we currently operate. Like to say, well, if we can just make recycling better and better and better, then it's fine. Like we don't have to worry about the amount of plastic we use instead of thinking about ways that we can reduce single use items in the first place. And that would actually make a much bigger difference than just making uh, our, our basically solving the problem on the back end. I, I get frustrated with that a lot because I think that that really that whole like over promising people put hope I've been hearing about carbon sucking machines being like launched into the atmosphere for since I was like 13 years old and (laughs) first learned of climate change and uh and I I know we're going to talk about them a little bit more but they're not like you know floating around the sky like everyone advertised back then um so this, this putting faith in technology really asks somebody else to solve our own problems instead of reevaluating, especially here in the U.S., where we are responsible for so much of the world's carbon emissions and pollution. And we've done a lot of habitat destruction being like, oh, but it's fine. It's, it's a very like rich country mentality because we're also not dealing with the actual consequences. A lot of these things we've already done. And we're just kind of like hoping that by the time they really hit us hard, we'll have figured out a solution. We're smarter than that. And I, I, that really just grants my gears a little bit. Yeah, for sure. I, I see that too. What's interesting to me, cause I guess I'm just naive is that like when I first started, you know, reading about this, I was like, geez, people. Okay. Like I, I, I get this for sure, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't use this stuff like you know we can do both was was kind of like it sort of never really crossed my mind that the promise of these things would keep people from making changes or you know trying to do other things in addition so I I guess, which is just stupid of me to, to not realize that, that, yeah, like, oh, if you're being promised this thing that is going to, you know, save the planet, then, then yeah, why would you make any change? So I definitely, I definitely agree with that in the sense that we can't just be waiting for this big thing to, to save us all for sure. So the, the third of those three arguments, which again, I, I think these, these three all go together, but there was an article, basically an opinion piece that was uh, posted on Medium, appropriately titled, 
uh, global technology alone won't solve environmental issues and you know it <laughs> is the title of the article and he, the quote that I'll steal from him that, that kind of sums it up is that making a polluted system more efficient makes it pollute more efficiently so he's talking about how things like energy efficient light bulbs using just a very basic example so okay we're getting these bulbs that are more and more efficient what are people doing we're using them more and more and more so we're not actually saving energy we're not actually reducing emissions because as things become more accessible and cheaper cheaper and whatever we're just using them for more and more things we're lighting things now that we didn't light before things that didn't need to be lit where our population is growing and so we're still continuing to grow uh, energy that way so used that example with light bulbs you could think of it the same way like okay you listen to last week's podcast episode and you're like yeah i'll go get a hybrid car because right? That's, that's all it takes to convince you to get a hybrid car. Yeah. Listen to our very podcast. influential. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, but then you decide, well, Hey, now that I drive a hybrid, I'm just going to drive everywhere. And I used to, you know, walk a couple of blocks to, you know, get my coffee or whatever. And now I'm going to drive there every day instead so that we have that sort of mentality. So that as technology advances, advances, we're just taking advantage of it and not really reducing our emissions. So those are kind of the, the three big things. And again, to me, like that last argument, I was like, well, yeah, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't use energy efficient light bulbs. We just also need to make those behavioral changes. So to, to me, the, the title of the article says technology alone won't solve problems. And I absolutely agree with that concept. So I think that's just a really important thing to keep in mind is as we're talking about these technology advances, I'm not talking about any one sort of silver bullet, like here's this thing and it's gonna make everything perfect and we don't have to do anything anymore. What I hope is that these new and emerging technologies are going to make these changes easier and more possible for us as we go along. So that's just something to keep in mind. I do wanna circle, oh, go ahead, Casey. Well, I was gonna say, like one of the things he, this is Joshua Spodek in Median, and I think he also has a podcast and I haven't listened to it, but it's about, I guess, leadership in the environment. And one of the things he was talking about is changing kind of our belief systems that right now we're really, really focused on growth and we could be focused on things like, you know, recognizing when enough is enough things. And, um, but on the other hand, that's something I don't think he really talks about as much as these things also coupled with government regulations that puts caps on things like carbon emissions and um, and and our our general usage, especially to larger corporations or government entities, which are the biggest polluters of all, that's really where this technology, when applied, is going to be well. Like it's it's not just about how are we changing the processes. It's also what is the end result and making sure that our policies are based around a better future and a better end result, not just like oh all of our buildings is energy efficient light bulbs. It's like, yes, but are they hitting a certain carbon emission limit? Like, are we looking at generating, like, are we still turning off the lights basically when we're gone? Right. And there's a, there was a second article too that I pulled here from Science Daily. It's research from Lancaster University. And it, it was talking about very similar things. And the quote that I pulled from that, that I felt like was a good summary. It says, putting our hopes in yet, more new technologies is unwise. Instead, 
cultural, social, and political transformation is essential to enable widespread deployment of both behavioral and technological responses to climate change. So again, we're not we're not discounting the the technological aspect of it, but yeah, those other things are going to be important. We still need to work on ourselves, our societies, our behavioral changes, and our political sort of guidelines and uh, structure is set up for sure. Okay, so I did just really quick want to circle back and mention this is not something I was originally going to talk about, but in the course of researching for this episode, I did find that the world's biggest carbon removal plant uh, actually just opened today, yesterday, as of as of this recording. So this facility is actually located in Iceland, and it is one of two currently existing. The other one is in Scotland, and these are basically plants that pull like like as in building um, that pull carbon out of the air and basically stick it underground Um, so that's what they do again one of only two uh, in existence there are some other facilities that try to capture carbon before it's released um, and put it underground Uh, so there's about 20 of those in existence but this is a little bit different in that it's pulling carbon that is already in the air. Um, so it's interesting. Again, it's one of those things that you hear and you're like, oh, well, that's that solves everything. This is not super efficient. The headline of this article says that in one year, it will negate just three seconds worth of global carbon emissions. So definitely not a silver bullet. And I think actually carbon capture is a thing that we'll talk about in more depth on this podcast in the future. So uh, for tonight, I just wanted to mention that this is a thing that exists. So you might hear about it, uh, but I want to read you this quote from Peter Kalmus. I apologize if I'm mispronouncing his name, but he's a climate scientist and he tweeted out Uh, Hey, technology. He tweeted, today, the world's biggest carbon capture facility turned on. If it works in one year, it will capture three seconds worth of humanity's CO2 emissions at incredible expense. I'm rooting for it, but only a fool would bet the planet on it. So that was his summary of it. Uh, I would tend to agree uh, in not so many words. I think it's a really interesting concept but this is a very expensive thing um and you know we'll see we'll see how it goes definitely more to talk about with carbon capture in the future but for now just wanted to quickly mention it so is yeah. it is it worth the cost that goes into building these facilities is it actually an effective solution is that something we should be pursuing basically it's also worth noting that like hey this how much time would it take to then build more facilities like this. Let's say that this thing works exactly how it's supposed to and all of that. The amount of time it would take to build facilities like this at a larger scale to start making an impact on our carbon emissions, it's that's too late. Yep. Like we are, we are working at a timeline that needs to be sped up a lot faster than that. And that means dropping down our carbon emissions, not asking something to suck it out. Right. And, but this could help prevent climate change further down the road. Right, exactly. And it's kind of like, you know, the same argument was made with another, an analogous argument was made with another thing that we've talked about on this podcast before in terms of the ocean cleanup project where they're trying yeah. to, you know, and that was some of the criticism is like, this is, this is the end of the lot. You're like, you're working from the wrong end. 
of the problem right now i in terms of that like again i i feel like it's they're they're valuable i'm not saying it's not valuable sure. but it's not it can't be the only thing we're doing in both cases yeah we can't just work from that end of the problem um prevention is going to be key so i i think there's a, a discussion to be had there for sure <laughs> There's a um, old study and I'm going to probably get things wrong when talking about this because it's been a long time, but basically they did a study and found that people who drank diet Coke were unhealthier and they ended up figuring out that it's not the diet Coke itself that was worse than the regular Coke. It was the fact that people who were drinking diet Coke then felt like they had permission to splurge on other parts of their Mm -hmm. diet that ended up outweighing any effect that the diet Coke cutting the sugar out of their diet ended up making. And I think it's the same thing for this is like, if we end up being like, ha we can suck the carbon out of the air. It's fine. If we pollute, we burn coal. Yeah, it's fine. Like we're, we're, we're still going to be yeah. pretty toasty up in planet earth. That's right. Yeah. So that can't be the mentality that we have. Absolutely. And so that's a really important thing to include in any discussion on technology. So, uh, with that said, I want to talk about a couple of positive other things. Yeah. Well, I, I, but I, I, it's a, it's a, I think a really important thing to frame this conversation, to talk about those things. So with that said, I, I do think that we can use technology to help us find ways to reduce our emissions now too. And I think that's really valuable. And this is actually what inspired all of tonight's episode was this first article that I want to talk about. Um, This is so cool. Uh, So this, I mean, first of all, I'll say this came out of Purdue University. That's my alma mater. So boiler. (laughs) ISCs. But I thought it was so cool. But before I dive into it, I will say I, I wrote a note to remind myself here to say this again with all of this technological stuff and what we can do and should do protecting nature is an essential part of fighting climate change like so again technology is not the only answer that's not what i'm saying here protecting our natural world is is an essential part of this fight but here are some other kind of cool things uh, that i think are happening so you may have heard about this this actually happened much earlier in the year i found but recently it's been in the news because it just achieved guinness book of world record status uh as the whitest paint ever invented And so you may be thinking, what does that have to do with reducing our emissions and climate change? Uh, We'll get there. So that's, I mean, this is a great example uh, of why I'm just, I'm so glad that there are so many people in the world with brains that work in different ways and understand things differently. This is not something I would have ever conceived as possibly being useful uh, in terms of climate and reducing emissions. Um, so, th- but this, this white paint was developed by an engineering professor I believe it's pronounced Siwin Ruan. Again, apologies, sir, if I'm I'm mispronouncing. But uh, so this is a barium sulfate paint. It reflects up to 98.1% of sunlight. For comparison, the previous whitest paint only reflected a measly 95.5% of sunlight. And it also, so I'm just going to read this. Uh, Other paints that have been on the market that are are designed to 
reject heat basically or reflect only about 80 to 90 percent of sunlight so these those paints reflect visible light but they actually do absorb infrared or uv light so they can't make surfaces cooler than their surroundings this new paint this barium sulfate paint can actually uh, by reflecting this heat and not absorbing the infrared and uv it can actually make surfaces cooler which blows my mind i just i can't even fathom i did find a, an interesting video that hopefully we can post for you um that kind of illustrates it that helped me wrap my brain around it a little more it sort of seems like it it works the opposite of a greenhouse a little bit if that helps you to visualize it a little more so the idea is that this is going to help eliminate the need for air conditioners in a lot of places, uh, which are, is responsible for a lot of emissions. And, and that's why they were working on it. <laughs> you know, so I again, it's it's just fascinating to me that somebody conceived that white paint could be a solution um, to a climate problem. So they have this paint, they're filing patents on it right now. And this again is a key component. And I think, you know, going back to our first argument against using technology is that oftentimes we hear about these things and then nothing ever comes from them. So it does have to be something that is scalable. So right now that's what they're working on is they're working with companies to be able to scale up this product so that it's not something that we just produce in the lab. How can we scale it up to produce enough of it to actually put it on the market? But I think this is so cool. Yeah. To, to talk a little bit more, more about this, this kind of uses the idea of albedo. So if you're in like a science nerd like me, the earth has its own kind of varying levels of albedo, which is how you measure reflectivity of the surface. So this is one of the things that people have been concerned about with the polar ice caps melting. Think about like when you wear a white t-shirt, it helps reflect the heat versus mm -hmm. you wearing a black t-shirt, it absorbs the heat. When we have the polar ice caps, they reflect much more of the sunlight out back into the atmosphere, whereas darker surfaces absorb it more. So when we have those melting and receding, we have less of a white area that would naturally be reflecting sunlight. So this actually in some ways mimics the natural way that the earth uh, works. And so it's great that we're gonna be able to hopefully add in some more surface area that has really high albedo, that reflectivity to help reduce the amount of heat that we're absorbing. And yeah, reducing the need for air conditioning, that's also hopefully gonna save us money. Yeah. So I guess I should mention what this would involve, basically what they're saying you would do with this paint is it, it does involve painting roofs white. So obviously there's some kickback, you know, there that there's going to be people that are like, oh, I don't want a white roof. And that doesn't match with the aesthetic uh, that I'm going for. So behavioral changes, societal changes, cultural changes, all of those things still have to happen uh, to put this in place. Uh, I also wonder like, what, what does this do? You know, if, if we were to use it, like in our part of the world where we have four seasons, does this, if how, how is this going to affect the temperature of my home mm. in the winter mm, yeah. time? You know, does this going to increase heating costs? So maybe this is going to be more useful in certain 
parts of the world probably really use this yeah Yeah. exactly uh but basically they'll say that they they're saying that covering uh about if you have about a a thousand square feet uh that you're of your roof that you're covering with this paint it could result in a cooling power of 10 kilowatts which apparently that, that number means nothing to me but is more powerful than the air conditioners used by most houses so Super I'm cool. all about this. I thought this was fascinating. Again, this is what inspired this episode overall. I, I really do hope that, I mean, this is definitely a story that I'm going to continue to follow. And I really do hope that it is something that we'll see in stores and get to see go into use. The other one that I had to mention in terms of technology to reduce emissions after last week's episode on cars was electric planes. Casey, how do you feel about electric planes? Would you want to go for a flight in an electric plane? Well, reading that guy's medium article makes me feel like this is just going to like complicate the problem of like, oh, well now we're all just going to not feel bad about taking planes everywhere. So I do have some reservations on that front, but I mean, generally taking an airplane is a pretty carbon heavy experience. So, Hey, if we can reduce that and help transfer over to less carbon intensive modes of transportation. Yes. I like the, and part of that. Yes. Yeah. Well, uh, don't worry about it too much for right now. It sounds like there were a lot of different things that started coming up as I was digging into uh, hybrid and electric planes. It sounds like actually having a large passenger plane hybrid or electric is probably still many decades off, but there are now some smaller, like six seater planes that they are working on hybrid and electric. The kind that that like Harrison Ford would drive or fly. Yeah. Okay. Yes, exactly. Um, and yes, I would take a plane ride. I would not. He crashes a lot. I would totally do it. Um, (laughs) that really speaks to your love of Harrison Ford. Actually, I probably wouldn't. I can sit there and sit here and say it right now because it would never happen, but I probably would not. Uh, I'd be like, nice to meet you. Not even uh anyway yeah so smaller vehicles that are uh are operating but it has a lot to do with the battery weight and that sort of thing to that would be able to provide enough power to get these planes off the ground uh so it seems like we are a long way off from any sort of big commercial electric plane. So don't let the headlines fool you. Again, don't be putting all of your faith and hope into the promise of electric hybrid planes, but there is some cool technology out there that is coming and possibly for smaller, more regional flights. These are going to be useful things that again, as long as we're not taking advantage of them, but if we're using them when we can, when they're available and when we need to, those things are in the running in the article that I sh- uh, shared there, Casey, that, that you can look at if you want to, is from MIT. They're talking about a hybrid plane, but really looking at it more from an air pollution side. So not so much from the carbon emissions, oh, but they yeah. have a design that could reduce nitrogen oxide emissions by 95%, uh, which sounds pretty amazing. And that's a, a big factor of air pollution. So thinking about human health, that's something that they're working on. So there are lots of different types uh, and styles of planes that are out there uh, in the works that you can read about, um, but probably nothing that you're going to be able to fly commercially on. 
cool for a while. So kind of jumping on here to another way that we can use technology in the conservation world is habitat restoration. And so I've just picked a couple of things from some major habitats, some things that you've probably heard about. Uh, one of these is not particularly new, but there's been some new advances in it, um, and that's coral reef restoration. So Casey, you've probably been at least a little bit familiar. We This is a thing that we've done before, like reef balls, we think of, you know, there have been like concrete structures that two conservation organizations will use to put down uh, where reefs have been damaged. So it's just kind of providing a hard surface, right, for a coral to grow on. Are you familiar with those types of things a little bit? Yeah. And something to know with like ocean acidification, it is harder for hard corals to form their kind of calcium shell in those environments. So having something that like some things can anchor onto can be important in, in helping reestablish colonies. I do know that like coral restoration is a really labor intensive mm -hmm. uh, endeavor. So I know that there's some cool stuff going on with 3D printing in corals. I would also love to see if there could be more things that could help eliminate that labor part of it. Cause you basically have to have trained scuba yeah. divers planting coral, even though they're not plants, but like using yeah. those, Seeding. those structures. Yeah. Seed it. Well, yeah. That yeah. still sounds planty. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Rewilding yeah. corals. Um, so yeah. So yeah. It would be interesting. 3D printing seems to be the name of the game uh, right now in terms of technological advances for coral. Yeah, there, so there are lots of different reasons that corals getting damaged. There, yes, ocean acidification for sure. Um, you know, irresponsible tourism, uh, mining, uh, irresponsible fishing practices, all of these things are causing destruction for coral reefs. And obviously this is a super valuable habitat. So that's why these re restoration efforts are in place. So there are a couple of 3D printing things that I found that are working to improve on this current model of, that we've had of just using these other hard structures, concrete balls, and those sorts of things to place. And the first one that I found was using 3D printers. They are printing clay tiles for coral to build on. So basically they set these tiles and this clay is supposed to, is providing a, that good um, sort of growing surface for coral polyps to attach and, and grow upon. This is one that when I was first reading about it, I was kind of like, okay, this sort of just seems like a use of technology to for something that we don't really need. Like, it seems like the things that we had, the materials that we have just using these reef balls, you know, we've even been able to just use I don't want to say waste, but like discarded, like steel metal frames, those types of things um, that would otherwise go to landfill. We've been able to use those in, in reef structures. So why do we need to create these tiles? Um, creating the tiles is an uh, energy intensive process and produces emissions on its own. But I, I guess the benefits they're saying in their tests in the first six months of observations, they were getting four times more coral surviving on these clay tiles as compared to conventional artificial reefs. Um, so it does seem that there is some benefit there. Again, you know, more study needs to be done. Is that a good enough trade-off for the emissions that are involved in creating these? I don't know. Just so. imagining this like circle of like producing clay, 
reduces emissions, right. which kills the coral through climate change, <laughs> which reduces, right. re- increases the need for that. And then you like add in your little carbon sucking machine and be like, Hey, <laughs> but this can stop it too. Right. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah. That's a, I mean, again, like that labor intensive element to coral rewilding. That's what I've decided. I'm going to call Good. it. I like um, it. I mean, there's official names for it, I'm sure. But, um, but I, I feel like if you can be more efficient with which ones actually take hold and grow, that is a pretty valuable asset because the amount of manpower is sometimes one of the limiting factors in these rewilding things. And, you know, I, I guess I'm willing to say I'd rather us be producing emissions through coral rewilding than like, I don't know, burning coal, you know? (laughs) Yeah, for sure. If we can spend our budget, if we had a cap, that's a thing if we had a cap and we could spend our budget there instead of elsewhere, instead of just like free for all, like that would be nice too. Yeah, for sure. So the, the use of this clay tile is, is right now at the studies going on in the North of Hong Kong at a site that had been used for coral mining in the past. So they're trying to um, restore this area that had previously been used for coral mining and is now a protected area. So that's where this is coming from. So yeah, it's, you know, these these people are, they're doing it for the right reasons, right? The motivation is there. I agree with you. It's yeah, better. I would rather produce emissions this way for then from, you know, something a little more superficial, but is there a better way to do it? Is the trade-off for those emissions, is it, is it that much better than the methods that we already have? The next one that I found does kind of address that a little bit too. It's more 3D p- printing, um, but this is from uh, the United Kingdom and they created 3D printed coral structures. They are using calcium carbonate, which is the backbone that you know, coral naturally produces, but they are using calcium carbonate created from bacteria hmm. to 3D print these structures. I don't understand 3D printing. I'm going to be honest. Oh, it makes my brain hurt. (laughs) And I've seen it. I've watched 3D printing happening. If you really want to make your brain hurt, I was reading an article about 3D printing food. Oh, I don't. I mean, great. Like good. We need, I'm sure it has to do with meat or something, But, but. but you also have to have, like, it's not creating food. You have to right. have the material to start with. So I really don't understand it. It, it seems very unappetizing. When I played Quidditch in college, the University uh, or Virginia Tech had a 3D printing machine that was definitely like in the early year, years of 3D printing. And uh, and they printed our Quidditch medals for a competition one year. And that was like my first experience really with 3D printing. It's just a strange thing to think of this like plastic uh, Quidditch metal and then think like they could print meat or right <laughs> or yeah. bacteria poop or something. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I, yeah. I don't understand 3D printing as a whole. I don't fully understand uh, this process with the bacteria either, but basically they are saying that this is, it's producing no emissions. And again, it is actually, I guess they are removing carbon from the air. So Cool. All right. I love it. Um, It says in the article that production of high quality calcium carbonate usually means they need extreme temperatures and is produces a lot of emissions, but this method produces no emissions, instead removing carbon from the air and locking it into the new compound. Our project is sucking CO2 from the atmosphere to produce calcium carbonate. So... Again, yes. cool. You know, I don't know what the scalability factor of this is going to be. You know, the, these articles come out and they are 
uh, from universities, they're from researchers, their laboratory conditions, all of those sorts of things, but could be something cool and productive to use in the future. So to help again, restore those coral reefs, we still need to prevent the future loss as well. So, right. Things to remember for forests as well, Casey, you mentioned the manpower required to restore these reefs. That's what this next one is addressing. And this is using drone technology now to help restore forests because reforestation efforts can also require a lot of manpower to go out and, you know, hand plant all of these trees. And like we said, nature is essential to our climate solutions. Both coral reefs and our forests are huge carbon sinks. So you always hear about reforestation efforts being essential to uh, help fight climate change. So there's a couple of organizations now that are working to help reforest reforestation efforts by using drone technology. So there's one organization called Flash Forest. This is a Canadian company. They have a goal of planting 1 billion trees by 2028. So according to them right now, even with current reforestation efforts being what they are and us being aware of how essential trees are for the climate, we have a net loss of about 7 billion trees per year. And so we cannot reforest fast enough, basically, to make up for our losses. So they're saying with this drone technology, they're going to be able to plant trees more quickly, at least 10 times faster, and more cheaply than doing it by hand. Cool. My initial, you look confused. Okay. I, well, I'm not confused. I'm just, I guess from a drone perspective, are they just see bombing everything or are they just like I, that was not meant to nope. reference other drones but it was meant to like seed bombing something you do where you like throw out a like soil clay mixture with seeds mixed into it and then it sort of grows on its own are they doing that or are they actually like digging a hole so it is more the seed bombing but that yeah that was my initial question and I still have more questions about it and I, I I watched a video where they talked about it a little bit my first question was just like are are they just tossing these seeds um sorry I just got distracted my dog rolled over on the couch and now literally I just see he's like laying on his back and there's just one foot like sticking straight up in there um so because yeah if you're just tossing the seeds out of a drone how do you prevent I mean how are they actually getting planted and how are you you know managing this how are they not just getting eaten and all so they do have the pod like you say okay. so yeah so the the seeds are sort of encased in a little pod of materials so they toss them out that way to prevent uh, drying out and or consumption by animals but yeah and they're still you know, this is still early on so i think they're still basically doing trials to see what's effective they're looking at different species of trees and kind of trying to, to see what works this way uh, but yeah that was my question too is you can say i mean find how many seeds are you tossing out there about how many of these are actually taking and growing into trees is my question too yeah, I think um, really reforestation efforts deserve their whole own episode because they're really complicated. But basically in the last couple of years, we've really discovered that so many of our efforts of just like putting trees, saplings or seeds into the ground 
have really not come to bear all of the trees that we are expecting. And it mostly has to do with lack of care. Like you really do have to water a tree when it's put down most of the time. And, and we haven't been doing that official efficiently. So I, I, I guess I'm skeptical on this one. Like I want mm-hmm. it to work so bad. I want all of the reforestation efforts to work so bad, but, uh, I'm very skeptical of like a, even less human intensive version. Like it's one thing to scatter seeds everywhere. It's another thing for them to survive long-term and provide the actual either habitat or carbon sink that we're looking for. So let's definitely revisit this. Oh yeah. No, I, yeah, I definitely want to, I I think most of these things kind of deserve their own episode, but, and I, yeah, I, I definitely want to follow up on all of these things too and see you know, what, what results are they getting? How's it going down the line and all of that. So there's flash forests that you can look into. There's also drone seed in the United States. So I know they helped out uh, trying to plant trees after the wildfires that we had out West last year and all of that. There are, of course, in addition to Casey, the things that you've already mentioned, there are limitations to drone technology. You know, these drones can only carry so much they can only go so far so lots of things to consider here I do like the idea Uh, yeah if it if it works though this is one that I really like I would love to see what the results are and how successful they are at getting these trees to grow because boy it does seem nice like planting trees is hard and, you know, going into these, going into areas that we need, you know, reforestation, this can be difficult terrain to travel to and all of that. So to be able to come up with a way that we could do it faster and cheaper. I, so in high school during our like school, make a difference day, we planted a bunch of trees in the schoolyard and my senior project was to haul five gallon buckets like a quarter mile to, to water these trees because the hose wouldn't reach that far. And I did that like every two or three days for an entire summer. And some of those suckers still died and they were way more established than most of the trees that people plant on these. So it is a uh, definitely a difficult prospect. And I also know that they're also coming up with some technologies to try and better monitor how successful these efforts are so that NGOs and governments and all sorts of things can't just throw out, well, we planted like 1 billion trees and really they just like rain seeds from the sky as in this, but seemingly this seems to be more. Yeah. So it's a little bit more holding people to account because we're not really seeing the fruits of that effort. Yeah. That's a good point. And so, and yeah, so speaking of, of using technology to kind of monitor those results, that certainly is another potential use for technology. And the thing that we are seeing technology help us to do is to monitor. So in terms of things like protecting wildlife, monitoring for activities like illegal logging, poaching of wildlife, this is another area where hopefully we can continue to employ better and better technology. So, um, you know, this is a, a, a thing that has been going on. This isn't any sort of brand new technology or anything like that, but I did come across a recent article that I wanted to share, uh, mostly because it gives me the opportunity to mention the Black Mambas. Are you familiar with the Black Mambas, Casey? Not it the sounds- animal, but the... <laughs> Not Kobe Bryant, not the animal. Oh, yeah. uh, uh, is this the female? Yes. Um, yes. There's like a female ranger group 
yeah. and they're super cool and also really effective, like compared to their male counterparts, get really good results partially because they're women. They are an all-female anti-poaching unit in South Africa and they're awesome. I love them. So they do on boots on the ground protection, primarily rhino poaching. Um, but you know, they're, they'll monitor for any sort of suspicious, suspicious activity. They are fantastic with community engagement, education as well, um, do work with uh, local school kids and oh gosh, I'm going to blank on the name. I think Bush babies is the name of their educational sort of oh. component. <laughs> um, yeah. So they're awesome. Look up the black mamas. They have their own website. Um, but there, so, oh gosh, was this earlier this year or last year? I can't remember, uh, but there was a partnership between Samsung, another company called Africam that has camera traps up, uh, video cameras posted that you can, you can actually go on their website and watch African wildlife. It's pretty cool. Um, and, and, but it was a partnership between Samsung Africam and the black Mambas. And so they were basically using cell phones. So cell phone technology, they were not, they used mounted cell phones, uh, in special cases to live stream different areas of the reserve. And so not only could the Rangers watch and listen and monitor, but people just people all over the world. Yeah. Could log in and watch this live stream and monitor for suspicious activity. Um, so whether that was, you know, sounds of, you know, chainsaws, whatever, or, you know, seeing something suspicious, uh, that they could report that they also provided Rangers with better uh, communication to allow them to communicate better out in the field, which is really important. So this was wildlife watch, uh, this actually, so I got really excited about this. And then when I went to follow the link, it turns out that it was actually just a two month pilot project. So that sort of live stream global monitoring is not happening anymore right now. They did still, you know, like I said, equip the black mambas with some, some better technology to allow them to communicate better. So that's ongoing. Um, but this wildlifewatch.com uh, is, is currently not uh, anything that you can go and participate in anymore, but another one that I will keep an eye on and hope for more in the future. But I think uh, that's definitely a cool thing. And I'd heard, heard about other things in years past too, where they were using like recycled cell phones that you could send in to monitor and not doing the live stream, not doing the video, but they were actually uh, listening for the sound. So that was more of in trying to protect against illegal logging and things like that. So listening oh, cool. to the sounds of of uh, the chainsaws and that sort of thing. So I think that's definitely this sort of just advanced communication and connection is something that's really useful. Yeah, we take it for granted in the US, but like in some parts of the world, this technology is just a can be used in ways that like Sarah and I right now are FaceTiming from, you know, 600 miles away from each other. But in a lot of areas, like we just don't have internet connection that can be such a challenge for conservation. I do say, I want to say on the flip side of this, and I don't necessarily have like an article to reference, but there are some issues also with the increased use of technology to document where animals are. Mm-hmm. This can also tip off poachers yes. um, to their whereabouts or like tip off poachers to where the blind spots within the technology of the rangers monitoring are. So if you imagine like the people who know this area really well, they're like, oh, well, I know if I go at this angle from it, I'm going to get caught on camera, which is a good deterrent. But also, you know, if there's a 
a need, they're going to find a way. And a lot of these people are pretty desperate to just be able to support their families. So the poachers will sometimes use this technology to continue to skirt it, but it's a good deterrent. And there's more and more that can be done in development with this that will help protect wildlife. Um, and, and hopefully, you know, more and more of those jobs come to those areas so that there's less of a desire to poach and much more of an incentive to protect the local wildlife instead. So that's just kind of the flip side of that coin is we do have to be careful about documenting where we find wildlife. And you'll actually find a lot of papers nowadays that identify new species. Don't give you specific locations for those species because that like people will be like, oh, cool. Um, Madagascar in that tiny little forest right there, you're bragging about how you found this little rare gecko that's only found in this two square mile space. Excellent. We're going to take a trip there. We're going to go scoop them up and sell them for lots of money. So yeah, things to keep in mind. Yeah. That's a really good point, Casey. And I don't have an article on it per se either, but traffic.org is a good website to look at. That's one of the things that they're working to combat as well. And there's, there's some good info there. Okay. So just one last real quick thing that kind of ties in. So we talked about this use of technology to help kind of monitor and protect wildlife. This same type of technology also just really helps us to keep studying and learning more about wildlife. So we talk about drones, we talk about camera traps, visual monitoring, auditor at auditory monitoring. This helps us to learn more about animals as well. Wildlife tracking has been around for a long time, really, since I think like the 50s or 60s is when we first started doing um, like radio telemetry, I think, for tracking animals. And it's progressed and changed over time. We have, you know, GPS tracking devices and all of that. Now we were talking about tracking devices for butterflies a few weeks ago. So um, I think that's a really important way that technology has helped us. Obviously, the more we know about wildlife, the better we can protect them. So we just wanted to mention that as another great use for technology. Camera traps have really changed the game in how we've been able to monitor wildlife populations. Um, and get data like that. Google has helped develop some AI technology that's helping to analyze those camera trap photos more efficiently because that can be really labor intensive as well. We'll talk more about that in our wrap up. And then I had to mention, this isn't brand new technology uh, by any means either. This has been around for several years, but I just had to mention the snot bot. Casey, are you familiar with the snot bot? Is this where they, <laughs> where they take like samples of the blowhole spout? Yes. Yes. So if yeah. you're not familiar with whales and, and cetaceans and, and dolphins, their blowhole that they breathe through on the top of their head is actually their nose. It is a modified nasal cavity. And so when they like do the little, like, oh, you see them breach and it's beautiful. And you see the, the little like whale spout of them. That's really them just snorting well, a bunch of water. Out, yeah. yeah. Just like <laughs> getting that all out of their nose. And with it comes all of their mucus and their snot. And you can get info about that. So Sarah, tell me about this bot though. I don't know as much about the bot. It's just drone technology again. So it's basically a modified consumer drone that they've adapted to be able to collect samples. So it is a super cool 
non-invasive way that they can collect DNA samples. They can look at hormones. They can get, look at the microbiology. They can collect it. So all of this kind of stuff that they can get good health indicators from. And then of course, drones. I mean, we've all seen just people flying around drones. You can get photos, you can get videos that can help with animal identification, that can be used in education, that can be used in public education. Man, I am all about it. The the, the white paint, got, starting with the white paint and ending with the Snotbot drones. I gotta I know it. though, what are the whales thinking? <laughs> like, well, hopefully, hopefully they're like, it's not even, it's, hopefully they're not aware like, of it whatever. at all. Yeah. I mean, that's the idea is that it's a not a very non-invasive way that they can collect this data I mean I don't know I don't know what those whales are thinking but I just imagine like coming up from air from the swimming pool and basically seeing like like size proportionality wise like a bee just being like hey just here to collect your snot yeah (laughs) no big deal continue your day as normal (laughs) yeah uh I'm sure that's exactly what's going on uh, in their brains they're just like if only I had a fly swatter um what that's a great way to end uh so (laughs) thanks everybody Uh, hopefully that was interesting at least again just to to kind of put a bow on that I love seeing these articles I love hearing about these different types of things I think that people are amazing in how they come up with these different ideas and there uh, I just think the people that are developing and using this these technologies really have their their hearts in the right place um, and I'm excited to see sort of what comes to fruition but remembering that this is all a part of the bigger picture technology is not going to save us from climate change it is all of the things it is it is our government it is our own actions, uh, it is our cultures, um, and how, you know, as we're, we're thinking about making these behavioral changes and uh, policy changes and all of that, how can we use these, this technology in appropriate ways to help us along? So, yeah, I would also say that like a lot of, we keep talking about like, is this scalable? And really that's like an economic term to a certain extent. Like, yes, there's resources and certain things that are finite that make things prevent them from going to market. But there's also a certain idea of, is this valuable enough to our consumer or whoever to pay for? And really what that partially is saying is uh, what dollar amount do we value our climate or what dollar amount do we value this, uh, this particular habitat. And so also starting to try and reframe, like what, what things should we be investing in, even if the cost is really high, even if like, you know, it's, it's, it made me think of the hybrid car, like, oh, if now I have a hybrid, I should, I'm going to drive more than I walk. So the reason the hybrid is, is not just popular, but exists is because there is a, a consumer base. It was marketable and it was consumable. Um, that's why it exists and it has potential to impact behavior down the line, but it's, it shouldn't just be about like what the average consumer can buy. It's also about like, how, how much do we value a natural resource to put that actual money into it, to make it worth it for our society, to start looking at it as a common good rather than an individual thing that we need to purchase. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, thanks, Casey. Thanks for listening, everybody. Stick around. We will be right back to wrap things up and talk about our action for the week. 
thanks again for listening, everybody. We just wanted to do a real quick wrap up here with everything that we talked about. And uh, I will say, in addition to all of the uses for technology that we talked about tonight, of course, another one that we maybe sort of lightly brushed upon is that technology just helps to bring us together too. You're listening to this podcast via technology. We recorded it using technology. We're in your ear holes. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. Technology. <laughs> so it, that, that's and that's that's not a unimportant thing, right? Like it's fantastic that technology can bring us together to see and learn about things um, out of the community, that it can show us things that exist on the other side of the world. I did that AFRICAM that I mentioned earlier. I spent several minutes, I pulled up their website and I was watching some type of hoofed animal that I was really irritated I couldn't identify. Uh, but right there on this camera trap, yeah, middle of the night somewhere in Africa, super cool. Um, so I don't want to discount that as a use of technology as well. And it allows us to all participate in conservation. So even though that uh, wildlife watch uh, live stream project isn't going on anymore, there are lots of other ways that we can help participate in conservation all over the world using technology. So that's going to be my, my sort of specific homework assignment for you this weekend. If you are not familiar, I think maybe that we've mentioned it before. Um, there's a website called Zooniverse. You can visit zooniverse.org and they have a collection of different projects in a lot of different categories. I'm going to challenge you specifically to participate in a project in their climate category or their nature category. They have both of those um, and there's lots of different things. A lot of them are camera trap projects. So you can spend some time. I mentioned that, you know, that Google has this AI, AI technology, but a lot of not everybody has that technology. That's not widely in use um, necessarily right now. So a lot of organizations, they do these camera trap projects to help them with whatever they're working on, but they, they need some eyes uh, to help and go through and sort these camera trap photos. So you can help that. But I, there were also like ones where you were listening to dolphin sounds or whale sounds and stuff like that. So you can go through, see what strikes your interest, spend a little time uh, helping out with a climate or nature project. That's awesome. Zooniverse is Z-O-O-N-I-V-E-R-S-E.org. Um, so zoo, like animal zoology, mm -hmm. zoological society. Yes. Um, and it's a pretty cool website. I've done their Serengeti stuff before and it's pretty cool. Like you feel like a scientist, you're like, Oh, I see one Impala and they'll help you figure out that it's an Impala and it is eating right now. Yeah. And then you like submit it. And what that does is it makes it so the scientists don't have to look at the literally tens of thousands of photos that they have. It's you and a bunch of other people getting eyes on it. So they can actually sort out what just has grass in it <laughs> and, yeah. and what, what thing the wind triggered and what actual animals did. So it's a pretty cool website. Definitely check it out. Yeah. And for our Make your kids do it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, honestly, like it's fun and it's, I mean, it gets addicting. Like once you're on there doing it, like you'll just be sitting there going through. Um, and for my Indiana listeners, I know we've got a lot of you. There is actually an Indiana project in Indie Wildlife Watch has uh, photos up there now that you can Super go to cool program. You local. Yeah. Uh, so, and then my second real quick challenge for you, this is just a general challenge. Again, technology can't be a silver bullet. We have to make changes too. So my second challenge for you is just to evaluate your technology 
use. Make sure that you are using your resources wisely. Um, you know, make sure that you're not taking advantage of that energy efficient lighting that you bought or your energy star appliances or your hybrid vehicles. Make sure that even if you have those things that we are still doing our reduce, reuse, recycle, uh, and all of those things um, that, you know, we're less is more uh, making sure that we're cutting out things that we don't need, behaviors that we shouldn't have. Uh, just make sure that we're we're using our resources and using our technology wisely. Yeah. Just because you have that low flow shower head does not mean that now you get to, to take the 30 minute shower that completely negates the purpose of your low flow shower head. So keep that in mind. And we're not perfect, but we can all make a little change and change our little social group and impact the culture. And hopefully lots of other things will catch up in the meantime. Cool. Thanks, Casey. Thanks everyone for listening. Again, if you have any ideas for us, if you want to share with us what you're doing, there's a few places you can find us. We are on Facebook. You can find us at a little greener podcast on Instagram. We are at a little greener pod and you can send us an email anytime at a little greener podcast at gmail.com. We always love to hear from you. We appreciate you listening. Casey, it's always lovely to see you as well. Thanks for your discussion. Thanks for leaving this one. Thanks for sharing all these wonderful technologies. Uh, Have a safe week, everyone. We'll see you soon. 